0: This is Hear Me Out, I'm Celeste Headley. The conversation about the conflict between Israel and Hamas remains heated, even as that situation changes by the day, sometimes by the hour. The moral contours of war are always complicated, no matter what war you choose to focus on. Who has an obligation to do what and not do what? And to whom? These are the questions international law has tried to answer, of course, and yet they continue to be posed. The vast majority of Americans are worried for the safety of the Israeli people, and only a slightly smaller number are worried for Palestinians. But with such a clear imbalance of power between the two players, is it controversial to suggest that the oppressed also have ethical obligations even as they resist?
1: We all have uh, obligations not to kill, torture, murder, lie. And those obligations don't cease when people are uh, oppressed.
0: Michael Walzer, writer and professor emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study, joins us to debate who's a moral actor? That's in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. At the time we recorded this episode, Israel and Hamas were engaged in a days long ceasefire and hostage exchange. That ceasefire has since expired, and firing has begun once again although there were reports indicating the firing never completely ceased from the start. It has been a brutally violent conflict since it began with a horrific terrorist attack carried out by Hamas in early October. A few weeks ago, we talked on the show about whether those who are not directly involved in this conflict are morally obligated to pick a side and then post their views publicly. Today, we'll talk about the war again. And once more, think about the moral questions posed by the conflict. Last month, the social media app TikTok was accused of disproportionately boosting pro Palestinian and pro Hamas content. The platform denied doing that. This conflict is driving a change in US public opinion, largely on partisan lines, but a majority are more inclined to support Israel. However, Americans increasingly understand that Hamas is not representative of all Palestinians. And young people especially sympathize with the plight of those who are trapped in the Gaza Strip, unable to flee the shelling. 82% of Americans are worried about the safety of the Israeli people, and three out of four are equally worried about the Palestinians. And so with that in mind, that concern over the safety of the human beings who are suffering because of this war, we were drawn immediately to a piece that appeared in The Atlantic last month titled, Even the oppressed have obligations. That is an opinion we did not expect. And so we had to reach out to the author. So here he is. Michael Walzer is a writer and professor emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study. Michael, welcome.
1: I'm glad you invited me. I'm grateful for the chance to talk about my uh, article.
0: I am grateful that you're willing to talk to us. It seems that people are increasingly worried about taking any kind of stance um, on this conflict, justifiably so. People have lost their jobs. So let's get to um, your opinion here that led to your Atlantic peace, even the oppressed have obligations. There's, you're coming from a point of view in which um, you're, it sounds like you're responding to some of the discussion that has occurred around Hamas. Um, and there have been a number of people who've said Hamas's behavior is justified morally defensible, can you tell us, is there a a brief two or three sentence summary of what your view is here? Why the oppressed have obligations?
1: Well, everyone has obligations. We all have uh, obligations not to kill, torture, murder, lie. Um, And those obligations don't cease when people are uh, oppressed. They continue to have the obligations of moral agents. Some of the people who, who argue that oppressed people can do whatever they, they think is necessary for their liberation are, are not treating the oppressed as moral agents who are responsible for what they, for what they do, like all, uh, like all the rest of us.
0: The argument that comes to mind, of course, would be that these are all, you know, worrying about um, the safety of others is a luxury afforded to those who aren't worried that they won't survive another day, right? That to a certain extent, when a human being, any human being is in constant fear of their life, um, and I have to imagine that's true, not just for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, but for many Israelis as well. Um that they don't have the mental capacity when they're you know, their amygdala has taken over. they're in in fight or flight mode. They don't have the capacity to be worried about the the morality of what they do. They're just focused on survival. Yeah,
1: but it's not those people. It's not those desperate people who organize a social movement who plan a politics. It's not those people. It's people pl- acting claiming to act in their name. Those are the ones who who are the agents of terror politics and sometimes of of a better kind of politics. But they are the agents, and they are responsible moral agents. They are political actors responsible for the consequences of of what they do.
0: So it sounds to me like you are separating out here the the leaders in Hamas— from the average Palestinian. Is that true?
1: Well, Hamas is not an organization that represents ordinary Palestinians. Its rule in Gaza has been authoritarian and and brutal. They tolerate no dissent. They do nothing to promote the welfare of the people they rule. They don't even, when they are planning a war, they do not build shelters for their own civilian population. Uh, So yes, I am separating. I'm separating Hamas from the Palestinians. And I would separate the FLN from the Algerians in the same way.
0: And do you separate out the average Israeli from the Netanyahu government?
1: Uh, Yes, that's easy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So where is this line here then when you're talking about and again, I go back to, and I have no idea whether you came up with this headline, very often writers don't, but um, even the oppressed have obligations. It, it felt like a fair headline to me of what you were saying in your piece. So this idea that those who are oppressed have a moral obligation to follow basic human standards. So that, that, that uh, obligation you're putting on say Hamas and the Netanyahu government.
1: Yes. It's- but it does hold for ordinary Israelis insofar as they become political actors, um, and But
0: not ordinary Palestinians because
1: no, also ordinary Palestinians insofar as they are able to act politically on their on their own behalf. But that's that's not what we're seeing right now. I
0: start to get itchy when I hear things like that because. Uh, that you know there's this every time there's any kind of protest and of of course everything that you've spoken about earlier and that you spoke about in your piece was the violence either taking of life or maiming of a human being, but um the pressure to be civil, the pressure to uh, um, halt a protest because it's it's unpalatable to the rest of society. That has been used against the Black Lives Matter mo- movement. It's been used against many um, civil justice movements by the people in power to sort of prevent the protest in and of itself.
1: Uh, but I, I, I believe very strongly in protest. I joined the, the Black Lives Matter protests after the killing, the murder of George Floyd. And I believe the Palestinians have a right of resistance. Um, they have a right uh, to, to fight, to end the occupation. They have a right to respond even violently to um, violent settlers on the West Bank who attack them. They have a right to resist the, um, the army in the occupation. They do not have a right to kill innocent civilians. I don't intend to use my argument to prevent The oppressed from resisting. I want to encourage a morally justified and a morally effective resistance.
0: Okay, we're going to return to this. There's lots more to talk about here, um, but we'll take a break now. I'm speaking with Michael Walzer about what kind of obligations, moral obligations, oppressed people have. And we'll talk more after a break. This is Hear Me Out. And we're back. Thanks for staying with us. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. And we're speaking with Michael Walzer today. Um, Based on the piece that he wrote uh, saying, even the oppressed have obligations. And just before the break, you were saying that obligation extends to not taking innocent lives. Um, So the moral obligation doesn't extend to refraining from violence against not innocent, like, like combatants, in other words.
1: Oh, yes. Um, The FLN in Algeria had every right to attack the the French army. They did not have a right to put a bomb in a cafe where teenagers were drinking and and dancing.
0: Um, I should mention for our listeners who are not um, as versed in uh, international conflicts, Michael is referring to the Algerian War that happened during the 1950s and 60s. Uh, a major conflict between um, the Algerian National Liberation Front. I hope I got that right. <laughs> it's been a while since I've thought about that. But it was, it was basically a war over decolonization. Um, uh, yeah. And it was riddled with war crimes. Um, it has been studied many times. But the, the, the crux of that war, the foundation of that war, was the resistance of a people against colonization. Um And, again, to be clear, you're saying that within the, the confines of that type of conflict, the taking of lives is sometimes necessary and unavoidable when they're combatants.
1: When they are combatants, yes.
0: And if they're not combatants, i.e., we've seen horrific images of Israeli shelling on schools, on hospitals… Um th- that is also by your standard n- not okay
1: no that if Hamas embeds itself in the civilian population, if they store <clears throat> rockets in mosques and school and schools, if they use hospitals as major communication and control centers. Uh, if they launch rockets, as they do, from schoolyards and hospital park- parking lots, then an, an Israeli response aiming at those targets is justified. And the, Even
0: if it kills hundreds, and, sometimes thousands of civilians?
1: Even if it kills civilians that are being used by Hamas, exposed, deliberately exposed to attack by Hamas. Hamas is responsible for the deaths of civilians that it deliberately uses to shield its own activities. That's true in every in every war. Um, Does it
0: complicate it though that um, many Palestinians are being prevented from fleeing?
1: They are prevented from, from fleeing by Hamas who tries to stop the exodus to the south that Israel has ordered. Look, the the civilian toll is is terrible.
0: Yeah, it's horrific.
1: But if you believe it is horrific, you have to explain how the Israelis can fight a just war. Any country enduring the attack of 7 October would plan a forceful response. So how would you have the Israelis respond when Hamas uses the civilian population as a shield against any response?
0: I mean, it's it's obviously a, a tough question. It is incredibly complicated with a long history um, that uh, not only do I not even want to pretend that we're going to cover over the course of this podcast, but it, it's dangerous to do so because people make broad judgments based on... Um, sometimes rushed summaries. Uh, but I will say that the UN says more than 15,000 people have been killed over the course of this war in Gaza. Um, and we're not downplaying the horrific uh, actions of Hamas and the number of Israelis killed. But on Israel's side, more than 15,000 people have been killed in Gaza. That's an estimate. And about 40% of them were kids.
1: Israel accepts the 50,000, 15,000 number. That is not disputed. Israel claims that over 5,000 of them were Hamas uh, militants, Hamas fighters. Um, Even so, that is a large civilian death toll. And I think the first responsibility lies with Hamas that has deliberately exposed those civilians to, uh, to the risks of war.
0: And that brings us back to your argument that Hamas has moral obligations to not take innocent lives. On the other hand, it's kind of um, beating your head against a wall, right? Because Hamas is a terrorist organization. I mean, their organization is kind of founded on the principle that anything is okay to
1: achieve their aims. So the rest of us have to say no to that.
0: So... If you say the rest of us have to say no to that, how are we sup- meant to do that? I mean, is this an obligation that you're talking about to us in general? Is to to protest the violence of Hamas or other terrorist organizations?
1: Oh, I don't believe everybody in the world has an obligation to become politically active. If you become politically active on this.
0: interesting coming from somebody who's who's dedicated his life to politics, but but continue.
1: But if you become politically engaged on this issue, then you have to begin by condemning both the Hamas attack and the Hamas use of civilian cover. And then we can go on to argue whether the Israeli response is careful enough um, if it is doing everything it can to minimize the civilian casualties and and one of the ways of thinking about that is just to ask the question who who benefits hamas what do you mean who hamas benefits from every dead civilian because it leads the world to begin to demand that israel stop and israel loses from every civilian it kills it loses the the battle for support around the world so I think if if the Israeli st- strategists are rational human beings, they are doing the best they can to minimize civilian casualties because it doesn't help them to kill civilians. It, it, it hurts them, even if there were moral, as I believe there are, moral and legal barriers to killing civilians. In this case, there's also a prudential political reason not to do it or to do it as little as, as possible. So how do you fight an asymmetric war against an enemy that uses civilian cover? And that's, that's not an easy question to, to answer. I'm, I'm not sure that the Israelis have got it right. I am sure that they're trying to get it right because they'd be crazy not to. But maybe maybe they are bombing with inadequate or outdated intelligence. Um, I think that was probably true very early in the in the war.
0: Yeah, it could. I mean, we 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 don't know. There's, it's difficult as it is in any conflict to get a truly clear picture of what's happening, and it's certainly impossible to fully trust. Uh, the communications you get from any government that's involved in an armed conflict—I mean, that's true anywhere.
1: You know, um, when American television shows the, the the rubble of a of a blasted neighborhood. That they make no effort to tell us, although some of them know what was underneath the rubble. Was it a Hamas fighting the fort launching site? Was it a Hamas oh. storage site? I think according by hamas censorship they're not allowed to tell us in any case they don't tell us they just show us the rubble the ruin and we don't know yeah. what what lies beneath whether there was a target there that that needed to be hit and similarly there is israeli censorship from correspondence reporting from israel
0: we're gonna have to take another break but we'll come back There is there's there's still much I mean there's always more to talk about in this conflict or any conflict, but the idea of the the obligations that the oppressed owe to other humans is rich <laughs> um we will be back to talk a little bit more about it. This is Hear me out a podcast from Slate. Stay with us We're back. I'm Celeste Headley. you're listening to Hear me Out. It's a podcast from Slate that's all about disagreeing without being disagreeable and i'm not sure our conversation michael uh walzer qualifies entirely as disagreeing um so much as understanding um your place of expertise on this issue based on my strong opinions that don't come from a place of deep expertise <laughs> so this idea that the this the idea that Everybody has basic human obligations. I mean, that's what you're saying. The oppressed as well. But you're saying human beings have an obligation to one another to not take another human life or damage another human body unless it's absolutely necessary and unless that other person is um, openly involved in a conflict. Is that accurate?
1: Right, right. I do want to say the oppressed have obligations not to kill innocent people on the other side. They also have obligations to their own people, to protect the lives of their own people, which which Hamas has notoriously failed uh, to do in every possible way. Hamas has am- amassed vast quantities of, of wealth, billions, of dollars, according to the reports um, from the Hamas leadership in Qatar, and yet 80% of the citizens of Gaza live in uh, in poverty.
0: And and that, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, because that is exactly where I wanted to go, because it, it's been said again and again that the majority of people, of Palestinians at this point, and, never even had an opportunity to vote for or against Hamas. They haven't had a real election in quite some time. But also we're talking about a people who, most of whom are in desperate poverty. Um, The Israel cut off the electricity and they they supplied at at least half of the electricity in the Gaza Strip, cut off the electricity when this began. Um, So is that okay? I mean, uh, we all saw the images from that very first t- terrorist attack of Hamas on the music festival and were horrified, was then cutting off the electricity to all of those Palestinians justified.
1: No, it wasn't. And I have criticized it in numerous interviews of this sort. Um, it was uh, even, even right-wing Israelis have condemned the cutoff of electricity because Hamas has all the electricity it needs Hamas is refusing to provide electricity for the Gazan hospital. So yes, Israel had to continue supplying electricity, but it is a strange demand to make in, in usual, in conventional wars. You don't expect one side to resupply the other side in the middle of the war, but the circumstances of the strange circumstances of asymmetric warfare and of the history of Gaza made it, yes, Israel was, was, was morally obligated. But just how much electricity Hamas is using to ventilate 300 miles of tunnels. Think about that. And refusing to supply electricity to the hospitals in Gaza. So Israel had to step in, but it is—it's not a—it's not a usual kind of demand to make. But I—I I have criticized their refusal, also on the shipments of fuel. I believe the uh, what they called the complete siege was uh, both a moral, morally wrong, and politically stupid.
0: So I um. There's no question that um, Israel and Israelis have been in a terrible position for an extraordinarily long time. Um, That said, and I'm Jewish, uh, my godparents got married on Cyprus and first moved to uh, the new state of Israel before they came to the United States. And there's a strong, for me, a strong emotional tie uh, to that country as there is for a lot of um, American Jews. Um, At the same time, the, the, there's always a question whenever you have an imbalance of power, and there's n- no question here that in terms of power and resources and wealth, Israel is much better supplied, has much more resources and the back in the United States um, than the average, especially the average Palestinian so there's always the argument that when you have one side who are, is very powerful and one side which is completely or, or nearly completely disempowered, that that side, the disempowered, should take whatever possible means. And again, back to by any means necessary. But in this case, I, I mean it to say that the average avenues that are open to me as an American or maybe to an Israeli are not open to a Palestinian. So... In terms of resistance, if their marches, if their protests have no effect, what are they to do?
1: Well, first of all, they haven't tried a serious movement of massive civil disobedience. But what anyway, I want to I suggest a, a partial correction to your description of the power of balance indeed, asymmetric wars are between a high-tech army and a low-tech insurgency. But the high-tech army never wins. not in Algeria, not in Vietnam, not in Afghanistan, not in Lebanon, not in Gaza,
0: not in Iran, Iraq, I mean,
1: yes. <laughs> Think about that. The high-tech army never wins. So um uh, it's it's true.
0: That's a really good point.
1: (laughs) Israel may have nuclear weapons, which are of no use when rockets are coming. And imagine if they were coming from Lebanon and from Gaza. Half the country would be uninhabitable, and Israel's mighty army would be of no use.
0: It's a really good point. And certainly Israel is surrounded by enemies who would love to see Israel be wiped off the map and have not been shy about saying so. Um, But I want to go back. Let's, let's, let's yet again, zoom our lens out to see if this applies anywhere to any disempowered group. Um, And the obligations to, in many cases, the, the ruling majority. Um, uh, In that, Case when when you're when faced with an overwhelming force, you know it, even in Vietnam the way that they defeated the high tech, highly prepared, highly resourced American marvey was oftentimes by doing reprehensible things.
1: Well, the, the, uh, they were not able to attack the families of, Amer- of Americans in Vietnam. They attacked Vietnamese who were on the other side. Vietnamese supported the Saigon government. And those attacks were were cruel. Um, But they were also aiming to create a mass movement. And that's what they did. They won the battle for hearts and minds.
0: I don't need to say that this is a controversial topic. I probably don't need to say that any discussion of it very quickly becomes heated and contentious. Uh, the situation in Gaza is changing every day, uh, sometimes every hour. And we want to make sure that we get your thoughts. We know you have them. And this is the show that will always encourage you to step up and speak your mind. Um, so share your thoughts with us. Let us know what you think. All you have to do is email us at slate.com. Last week, we had Erin Grimm on the show, and she argued that healing your mental health requires more than just psychiatry. Now, before we go, we wanna share an email we got about that conversation from a career psychiatrist. That listener asked not to be named, but he wrote this. I've been a psychiatrist for about 35 years. I certainly agree that psychiatry alone is often not enough. I agree with your guest that medication can be life-saving, but is not a cure. The person consists of the body and mind, the family, work, school, and then the society at large. When I worked in hospitals, I could see that stabilizing someone and then discharging them into the same situation leads to repeat hospitalizations. As I worked with patients with chronic mental illness, I could see that beyond the family issues there were also systemic issues, such as housing, financial instability, intolerance, and religious issues that exacerbated the stresses on the individual. All of that is so true, and it just makes my heart so happy to know that we have experts in these fields who are listening in and, and bring their expert thoughts back to us. It's, it's so awesome, not only for us as a show, but for me personally. So thank you, listener, for writing in. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, as I said, please speak your mind, but always keep it open.